When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Now there's still two more echoes that we need to hear. 28 is an echo of war that we've seen earlier, now repeated. And then 29 is an echo of praise of God, another missionary homecoming, like we saw back in 26. But before we get there, can I just say one last thing about Alma 27? Because I think there is such a powerful lesson embedded in that chapter in making big, difficult decisions. That's what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were asked to do, right? What are you going to do? What do we do in this situation? Do we stay here and get massacred? Do we go back to the Nephites and hope to throw ourselves at their feet on their mercy? What are we going to do here? And the steps they took to arrive at their decision are such great principles to follow. We don't need much time to do this. We can kind of skim over the verses that we've already really analyzed, but watch the process unfold. In verse 4, they clearly identify the issue. In their case, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are being massacred. What are we going to do? In your case, marriage or mission or job or relocation or whatever the decision is that's weighing on you right now. Clearly identify it. Verse 5, then come up with an idea. Do your best thinking. For them it was, well, let's gather everybody and head back home to our place. Do your best thinking and come up with an idea. Now, at the end of 5, they say, we won't be destroyed. So that's the good news. So weigh the pros what are the possible benefits, the advantages of going this route? But in six, the king pushes back and says, well, here's the worst case scenario. So here's the cons. So don't just weigh the pros, weigh the cons as well. What are some advantages and disadvantages of moving forward in this plan? Now in seven, they seek God's help. Ammon says, I'll go inquire of the Lord. And so should we. Not at the exclusion of our own homework. They did come up with a plan originally, right? They're working on this. They're thinking it through. But they do need God's help. And so, seek it. In the meantime, verse 8, give it further consideration. It's not just totally drop it off in the Lord's lap, but seek His help, but keep working on it, keep thinking about it yourself. And in fact, as you do so, start filling in some more details. It was a very vague general plan to begin with. But now let's start thinking in more specific terms. For them, it was, well, let's keep talking about this. If we end up going down, well, how's that going to work? Well, maybe are we going to be their slaves. Can we make up our murders? Start filling in some of the blanks. In nine, they come up with a tentative decision. Let's go and we'll rely on their mercies. So, okay, I think I've done enough homework. I've been praying about it. I keep talking it through. I think this is the best route to go. But then in 10, again, the king pushes back and says, well, wait, let's make sure we get the Lord's confirmation. So even with your tentative decision, keep seeking the Lord's confirmation. 
wait for his answer. But also at the end of 10, he says, okay, if the answer says go, we'll go. If no answer comes, interesting they would even plan for that contingency, we'll just stay here and perish in the land. That's the otherwise option. So seek God's confirmation to the plan you've developed. Wait for his answer, but also be prepared to act on your decision in the absence of any answer coming clearly from God. Elder Richard G. Scott has talked about this powerfully. A clear yes gives us courage, a clear no holds us back, and a no answer is our chance to exercise our courage and faith in the decision that we had already reached. It's a way to call our bluff if we haven't really done our homework, okay? Well, in 11 and 12, as they're praying, the answer does eventually come. And it usually works that way. The answer usually does come, even if it doesn't seem to come at first. Once we've come up with our plan and we're ready to move forward, then the Lord sees that we do have confidence in our homework. We do trust our answer. And having provided some momentum, the Lord can then provide some direction. It's exactly what he does. And finally, 14 and 15, they pack up their stuff and move. They act in faith on the answer that they received. Important detail, they didn't have all the details. They didn't have all the information. They still weren't even sure if it was going to work on the Nephites' end, right? This is the roommate staying in the car in the driveway as Ammon goes and talks to mom and dad, can they move in with us? So they weren't waiting on having every blank filled. There were still question marks, but they had gotten enough of an exclamation point to at least move forward in faith. And that's typically the way it is for us as well. Powerful lesson in Alma 27 about making decisions. Now, back to 28. In 28, we have another battle ready to unfold. After the people of Ammon were established in the land of Jershon, and a church was established there too, and the armies of the Nephites were set round about the land of Jershon, and those borders that we talked about. I love the order there. Let's get them established physically first. Then we can establish them spiritually with the church, and then we can start protecting them with the armies. It even seems to follow the provide, preside, protect that we often talk about from the proclamation on the family. Let's provide for them. Here's your land. Let's preside. Here's the church. Let's protect. Here's the army. Or perhaps another way to look at it. Let's meet their physical needs. They need a place to stay. Then let's meet their spiritual needs. Let's provide a church. And then let's meet their emotional needs. Protect them. Know that they're safe here. I think sometimes because we're so gung-ho about the church, that's all we offer them is, here's the church stuff. Let me meet your spiritual needs. That's why I think President Monson was so inspired to take the threefold mission of the church. We need to perfect the saints and proclaim the gospel and, and redeem the dead and add, and we need to feed people. Because sometimes when they're too hungry for literal bread, then they have little time to taste the bread of life. We have to care for the poor and the needy. That fourth mission of the church for people in dire straits should be the first mission of the church. And once we've filled their belly, we can then move on to fill their soul. And again, like I said, not just to accept them into the church, but to let them know that they are safe here, protected, to meet their mental, emotional needs, as well as their spiritual and physical. However, remember what we saw back in chapter 26. The Lamanites, stirred up by the Amalekites and any Amulonites that are left, have already taken out some frustration on the city of Ammonihah. But some time has passed. They've taken it out on some Lamanite converts. They take it out on round two of the anti nephi lehis 
They want to keep taking it out on them. But now that they're safe in Nephite territory, well, let's take it out on them. And on the Nephites, we can try to kill two birds with one stone. Our former friends and our lifelong enemies all at once. And they pour everything they've got into it. Verse 2, there was a tremendous battle. Yea, even such an one as never had been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain, scattered abroad, with also a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi. This one was brutal on both sides. The worst battle they've had in 500 years. And why did it start? Because a bunch of former Lamanites converted. I mean, we always call the Amulonites and the Amalekites the apostates. But from a Lamanite perspective, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are apostates. How could you leave us and join the enemy? I can't help but feel that there would have been Nephites that probably felt in the aftermath of this great battle that this never would have happened if it weren't for you. If Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni, if they could have just live and let live, if they could have just stayed here, build up the church like Alma did, but no, they had to go stick their necks in places where they didn't have any business being. In fact, at the risk of hitting a little too close to home or over-applying things to current situations, forgive me, but I just think there is relevance here. Could there have been some Nephites that thought, this is just a black-on-black crime. And why did we have to be a part of it? This is Lamanites wanting to fight other Lamanites, so just let it happen. We should never have stuck our necks out. We should have never let them come. But to the Nephites' credit, that's not what happens. These are our brethren, and we fought to protect them as we would fight to protect us, because they are us now. They're devastated, obviously. Verse 4, this was a time that there was great mourning and lamentation heard throughout all the land among all the people of Nephi. Hold on to that. The cry of widows mourning for their husbands, fathers mourning for their sons, daughters for their brothers, brothers for their fathers. The cry of mourning was heard among all of them, mourning for their kindred who had been slain. In verse 6, this was a sorrowful day. There's the understatement of the first century B.C. Yea, a time of solemnity and a time of much fasting and prayer. I wonder about that. How much of that fasting and prayer was among the Nephites for forgiveness, for acceptance, for charity, for love, to fully embrace these converts to make their sorrows their own, that these Lamanites matter. And I cannot turn a blind eye. Yeah, I don't know how the church is organized there, if it's a Jershon First Ward and a Zarahemla East Stake, or, but I can picture what church must have been like if these groups come together. To picture a widow gathering her fatherless children and turning to the new face sitting in the pew behind her and saying, Welcome to church. We're glad you're here. You're one of us now. Not bitterness over my husband would still be here if it weren't for you. Simply acceptance and love. 
never a, these are your problems. No, these are our problems. Just like Ammon and his brothers felt. What are we going to do about our situation? Not us and them. Just all one. Children of God. I wonder if part of that fasting and prayer was to ask for God's help in making that happen. I know that if we are not one, we are not thine. But our only hope in becoming one is to become thine. So please, be with us. Help us. Help us change and accept and see past differences. And avoid any sense of blame or hierarchy or haves and have-nots. We'll see more of that at the end of this chapter. But as we get there, verse 8 describes such a beautiful summary of what a mission is, what church service is all about, what, what it's like to be involved in the salvation of other people. Verse 8, this is the account of Ammon and his brethren. Mormon is about to put the pen down on this and shift gears. Their journey in the land of Nephi, their sufferings in the land. And how's this for a description of service? Their sorrows, their afflictions, and their incomprehensible joy. Wow. You put joy in the same breath as sorrows and afflictions and sufferings? And yeah, I guess I'd consider that incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, it does, because I've experienced all of those, especially as I've served other people. That's the bitter sweet that we sense. That's why when God gives this scroll for John to consume in the book of Revelation, it is both sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly. It's all of that. It is sorrow and suffering. It is affliction. But it is joy that is incomprehensible to any but the spiritual man or woman who has felt it. Just looking at it from the distance, Mormon adds at the end of the verse 8, And now may the Lord, the Redeemer of all men, bless their souls forever. I love that he's just kind of caught up in this narrative himself. He wraps it up as a good historian would with just some details. Here's the account of wars and contentions. There's the 15th year of the reign of the judges. It's over. Lots of destruction. Many lives lost. Many thousands laid low in the earth. But then verse 11. All these bodies, they're moldering in heaps upon the earth. Many thousands are mourning for the loss of their kindred. But their mourning was twofold. Not just over their physical death, but over the potential of their spiritual death. They have reason to fear, he said. Fear that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's didn't feel. But fear according to the promises of the Lord that they are consigned to a state of endless woe. Others, meanwhile, verse 12, many thousands of them, do truly mourn for the loss of their kindred. They do mourn over the physical death. However, they rejoice and exult in the hope in fact, hope is not strong enough a word. Let's go with knowledge. They even know, according to the promises of the Lord, the kind that are fulfilled in every particular, that they are raised to dwell at the right hand of God in a state of never-ending happiness. That's why I'm amazed, even earlier in the chapter, all of that great mourning and lamentation was heard among the people of Nephi because of the tremendous slaughter that they experienced. Well, wasn't there a tremendous slaughter among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's back in chapter 24? And again in 25? But you don't see the same level of mourning or lamentation. Simply a, there wasn't a wicked man among them. They've all been taken home to God. 
again, distinguished by their zeal. I think distinguished by their hope and their faith and their testimony too. Such a clear perspective on what it is to mourn and which death is truly the tragedy. They had hope. They knew. They trusted God's promises. And thus we see, Mormon concludes this chapter with a few takeaways. First one in 13, we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression. The power of the devil, which comes by the cunning plans which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. See his first takeaway? We see inequality here. Now, I've hinted at a lot of that throughout this lesson, but here's the ultimate inequality. The ones not brought about by poverty or education or things like that, but the inequalities brought about by sin. Again, judging by the content of our character. The greatest inequality is the one that separates the spiritual haves from the spiritual have-nots between the spiritually ignorant and those who know the truth, between those suffering in the bondage of sin and those that know the freedom of redemption. That's inequality that must be overcome also, which explains the next thus we see, verse 14, the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. Because we see this inequality, spiritual divisions, Thus we see the need to go set it right, to preach the gospel, to share with everyone. And with that in mind, thus we see, here's his third, the great reason of sorrow and also rejoicing. Sorrow because of death and destruction among men. Joy because of the light of Christ unto life. Do we understand those two perspectives? Such clear dichotomies. Sorrow and joy. Darkness and light, good and evil. No wonder we need to be engaged. We need to heed the great call from God to go and diligently labor in his vineyard. Those are wrongs that must be righted. Well, by the time you get to the end of chapter 28, Mormon has basically put the pen down on the narratives of the missions of the sons of Mosiah. He wraps up the final details of these battles and then gives us his thus we sees at the end of the chapter. And picking up next week, we'll be back to Alma. We started with him, with Alma and Amulek and Ammonihah. Then we shifted to the Lamanites and the sons of Mosiah. Now we're going to shift back to Alma. It's no longer about conversion. Soon it will be about reactivation and retention. We'll see his experience with Korahor in chapter 30. And then he's off to try to reclaim the apostate Zoramites in 31 through 35 with his trusty companion, Amulek. I'm excited to see him again. But what we have in the space between is Alma talking about his own mission experience. It's his mission homecoming talk. Alma 29 is Alma's version of what Ammon gave us in Alma 26. And these two amazing missionaries, best friends growing up, little hell raisers that now are heaven raisers. One went foreign to the Lamanites. One stayed stateside in the land of Zarahemla. But the experiences they had were life-changing. And the way they talk about them afterwards is so moving as well. The way Alma starts, it's so poetic. Oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of mine heart. Now, one thing about poetry is it sometimes flips syntax to make the flow sound more beautiful. And I think that's what Alma's doing here. 
Otherwise, we'd read that and go, wait, if you're an angel, you get what you want? Sign me up. No, let's flip it. And how it would normally start, if this were just prose, would be, if I could have the wish of mine heart, here's what it would be. Oh, that I were an angel. Being an angel is the wish, not what would qualify him for wish granting. In fact, there you can see an interesting differentiation between Alma and Ammon. Because back in 26, how does Ammon start? About, he talks about blessings and asks his brethren, can ye tell? Can ye tell the blessings that have come to us? Well, when Ammon is focused on the blessings that have come to him and to others through his mission, here's Alma focused on the blessings he still longs for. Now, it's not a selfish way. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. But notice what he's asking for. If I could have the wish of mine heart, this is what it would be. First, to be an angel. Oh, if only that blessing came to me. What would I do with it? I would go forth and speak with the trump of God. I would raise a voice that would shake the earth. And what would I do in that voice? Cry repentance unto every people. You see, as a mere mortal, I'm confined by my feet. How far can I go to cry repentance? But an angel to be sent anywhere God would have you go, I would cry repentance to every people. Yea, I would declare unto every soul as with the voice of thunder. Again, that's beyond my mortal capabilities. But I would, and what would I do with that thunderous voice? I would cry repentance and the plan of redemption, that they should repent and come unto our God. Why? So I can build up the church? So I can have more numbers? No. That there might not be more sorrow upon all the face of the earth. That's an interesting goal on the part of Alma. I just want to eliminate sorrow from the source, which is sin. If wickedness never was happiness, then of course sin equals sorrow, which means repentance is what brings joy. In fact, go back up and see the end of chapter 28. You remember Mormon's final, thus we see. We see the great reason of sorrow. Sorrow because of death and destruction among men. Sorrow because of sin. And if only people knew the truth, the truth would make them free. If only they knew the plan of redemption and the gift of repentance, then there's nothing to be seriously sorrowful about. What a beautiful wish that Alma is expressing. But if it sounds a little familiar, it ought to. Particularly if you're thinking about Alma himself. Because what was his conversion story? Oh yeah, it involved an angel. What kind? One that spoke with the trump of God, a voice that shook the earth. And what was his message? Repent, Alma. Why? So that you can avoid the sorrow that you don't even know you're dealing with. Remember when the sons of Mosiah asked dad if they could leave? Back in Mosiah 28, it says that the very thought that anyone should suffer endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. That is sorrow that everyone deserves to avoid. And so can we go forth and cry repentance? I love that Alma is praying, Heavenly Father, I just want to do for others what you have done for me. I want to be that angel. Remember what Ammon recognized? When it talks about the relationship that he and those Lamanite converts had, that the converts looked at their missionaries as if they were angels. 
So here's Alma saying, I just want to be an angel. And Ammon could say, oh, been there, done that. Awesome. Great goal. In fact, Alma, you've already been an angel too. You were to Amulek. You were to the people that joined the church, the Zeezrom. You've been an angel just like we have ever since God's angel first turned our lives around. But I love the way Alma describes this desire. I just want to be for others what you were for me. Verse 3, though, he checks himself. And it's odd the way he says it. He says, Behold, I am a man and do sin in my wish. Now I read that and go, Oh, great. He wants to go cry repentance and eliminate sorrow from the world. He wants to serve God everywhere and anywhere from this moment on. And that's a sinful wish? Man, don't ask me what I'm wishing for. And yet, notice how he explains the sinfulness of what he's asking. For I ought to be content with the things which the Lord hath allotted unto me. That's what he's grappling with. I should be content with my sphere of influence. I want to be an angel so I can go anywhere. Well, I'm just a man that's been forced to stay within these confines. I guess I should be okay with that. I don't think it's a sinful wish at all to want to expand the reach of repentance, to enlarge the circle of influence that a person might have, especially when that influence is so righteous. But I think what Alma is realizing is an important one for any of us. What has the Lord allotted to me? These callings instead of those ones. This mission instead of that one. Or even this length of a mission compared to the length that others have had or the length that I even thought I would get myself. So maybe it's where we're serving or who we're serving or when we're serving or how long we're serving. And in a kind and selfless way, just wanting more of it. And yet pulling back and realizing Heavenly Father knows best. And I will be content with whatever the Lord has allotted to me. If I didn't get to serve what most people consider a full mission, I'm content with what the Lord allotted. If certain opportunities to make a difference seem to be cut short, I'm content with what the Lord allotted. But I never did this or never served in that. It's okay. It was never about that anyway. What are you doing with what God has given you? Now, as he's grappling with this, he's going to say a few things, but I want to jump ahead to see if something in verse 6, and then we'll go back and make more sense of 4 and 5. Those are a little trickier verses in context. Verse 6, he says, Now, seeing that I know these things, why should I desire more than to perform the work to which I have been called? Why should I desire that I were an angel that I could speak unto all the ends of the earth. So you can see he's still grappling with this. He's still trying to make sense of uh, how do I just lay that down on the altar and say, I've given all that I can. I want to give more. This, this is all I can do. So he's still struggling with this in one, two, three, but by six and seven, he's starting to realize, wait, I know these things. So why should I desire anything more? If I can internalize these principles, these things that I know, then being content with what the Lord has allotted me should come fairly easy. So that begs the question, well, what are these things? When he says, seeing that I know these things, what are these things? Well, go back to verse 4 and 5 now. Verse 4, I ought not to harrow up in my desires the firm decree of a just God. 
So again, change the context, it'll flow better. I ought not to harrow up the firm decree of a just God just because of my desires to extend my mission eternally. So there'd be something about his desires. If I could do it my way, that would end up ruining the firm decrees of a just God. Okay, wait, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure this out. How would my desires interfere with God's justice? I just want to eliminate sin and sorrow. Isn't that what God wants too? Well, yes, it is. But notice what he says in verse 4. For I know, so he's going to tell us one of the things that he knows that helps him be content once he realizes it. I know that he granteth unto men according to their desire. Now, we might go back to verse 1 and go, wait, that is the desire of my heart. You grant unto men their desire. Well, that's my desire. Give it to me. Well, that's not what he's talking about anymore. He grants unto men according to their desire, whether it be unto death or unto life. In other words, God truly does honor agency. He lets people choose and lets them reap the consequences of those decisions. That's what Mormon was after at the end of chapter 28, right? 13, thus we see the inequality of man because some people want this and other people don't. Some people are ensnared and others are free. Thus we see the great call of diligence to go out and teach. But at the end of the day, we see that there is great reason for sorrow and great reason for rejoicing. Some choose death and destruction. Others choose light and life through Jesus Christ. So if I know that God grants people what they really want and the choices placed before them are death or life, yea, I know that he allotteth unto men, yea, decreeth unto them decrees which are unalterable. That's part of his firm decrees from a just God. He does it according to their wills, whether they be unto salvation or unto destruction. Now, this is a little tricky, but, but let's try to work our way through it. If it were up to me, it's like Alma is recognizing, uh-oh, if it were totally up to me, I would just eliminate sin and sorrow and suffering. I'd cry repentance to every soul on earth. I would speak with the voice of God, a trump itself, shaking the earth. You've got to change. You did it for me. But maybe he's now realizing, wait a minute, you, you forced me to reckon with my sins, but you didn't force me to change. You forced me to face my real desires. This is the consequence of your decision, right? And this, even if thou wilt of thyself be destroyed. If that's really what you want, this is the road you're on, Alma. Is it really what you want? And he realized, no, I don't want that road. I want to be born again. I want to want the right things. Change me, please. You see, Alma, I let that happen because you expressed a sincere desire. I didn't force the change upon you. I forced the choice upon you. Well, other people are making choices too. And if they really want death instead of life, if they really want destruction instead of salvation, then the firm decrees of a just God is to honor the decisions that they've made and to honor the law of the harvest, to let them reap what they have sown. You don't think that's hard for me, Alma? Why do you think I do send angels? But there is a divine restraint on my part that I don't know if you have fully developed yet. I think it's one of the hardest things to develop of knowing the confines of what you have allotted even for yourself 
even when you're omnipotent, to say no, in order to give them space to choose and to grow. Again, open that gap between the two fruits like we saw back in Alma chapter 12. You might be a little too quick to hand out the fruit of the tree of life because you know how sweet it is now that you've tasted it. But if they have not yet chosen to reject bitterness, then that fruit might not be as sweet to them as it's supposed to be. So I know this is hard. This is harrowing even. But you have to trust my firm decree and my justice that I will honor people's agency. We sing it in the hymn book. Know this, that every soul is free to choose his life or his death and what he'll be. For this eternal truth is given, this firm decree from a just God, that God, justice personified, will force no man to heaven. And I fear if you had the trump of God and could shake the earth, you would be shaking people into the kingdom, ready or not. I cannot drag the unwilling kicking and screaming into heaven, or it would not be a heaven for them. I have to let them choose. Verse 5, he seems to reiterate it, but then adds another wrinkle. Yea, and I know, again, he's given us these I knows so that verse 6 makes sense that, ah, seeing I know these things. So here's another I know. Yea, and I know that good and evil have come before all men. He that knoweth not good from evil is blameless, but he that knoweth good and evil to him it is given according to his desires, whether he desireth good or evil, life or death, joy or remorse of conscience. So the end of verse 5 seems to reiterate what he just taught in verse 4. God gives us time to really work out our desires, to really manifest what we really want. And his justice, by firm decree, honors that. You've chosen evil, then I won't force good upon you. It won't be good. You've chosen death, then I can't force life. You've chosen remorse of conscience, then joy would not feel joyful until you've changed your disposition. So I need to honor that and give them space and time to repent. That's all true. But the beginning of verse 5, this other thing he knows, good and evil have come before all men, but here's the wrinkle. If you don't know good from evil, then you're blameless. Now, this gets really tricky, and this is where we need to understand and trust the omniscience of God, along with his perfect timing and perfect restraint. There's something about the level of accountability that I think he's grappling with in verse 5. If you don't know good from evil, you're blameless. Now, I don't think he's saying, so don't take away people's ignorant bliss, or better said, their blissful ignorance. No, that's why we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord back at the end of chapter 28. We need to teach people, but they need to be taught according to God's perfect knowledge, his perfect timing, his perfect restraint. It's almost the sense of there may be people that you would rush to judgment and say, oh, they are sorrowing over sin. Maybe they don't even know it yet. Remember how the consciences of the Lamanites were slowly awakened through Ammon and Aaron's missions? There is an issue of timing here. What you see as sin may not be quite as sinful as you think. I'm not saying that to justify or rationalize. What you consider sorrow, they may not be as sorrowful as you assume. Again, not saying that to justify anything. 
but simply trying to put faith in God's timing, his restraint, how much light and truth will he give to gently awaken people out of their ignorance so that the real bliss, the true joy can eventually come as they work through their remorse of awakened conscience and repent of their sins. I just think if it were up to us in our well-meaning but naive way, it's give mercy to everyone and end up robbing justice. It's giving the full flood of light to everyone, even those whose eyes are not yet prepared to see. It was Elder Maxwell that said, who better than the light of the world to decide how much light to give, whether those are flashlights or floodlights. Or as an inspired poetess once wrote, the truth must dazzle gradually, lest every man be blind. Alma, were you an angel? I'm afraid that shock and awe might be your usual approach. It worked for you and for your fallen friends. It wouldn't work for everyone. So please trust my aperture, how much I open or close, who I give the gospel to and when and how much. I understand readiness and that informs my restraint. There's one other thing he knows that will also help him be content in what the Lord has allotted him. And that comes in verse 8. For behold, the Lord doth grant unto all nations of their own nation and tongue to teach his word, yea, in wisdom, all that he seeth fit that they should have. You see, there's that hint to what he was referring to back in verse 5. He knows just how much to give them, all that he seeth fit that they should have. Therefore, we see that the Lord doth counsel in wisdom according to that which is just and true. He balances his justice, they're just and true. He balances his timing and, and quantity of light. There's all that he seeth fit they should have. But also at the beginning, you're not the only one that wants to share the gospel, Alma. And you're not the only one who can. I grant to all nations of their own nation, of their own people. There's an Amulek in every Ammonihah out there. And you see the good that your mission did to him when he got to join you in it? If you were the only angel there, what would that have meant for an Amulek? I think what the Lord is reassuring Alma with in verse 8 is, you're not alone. You want to be the angel to go speak to every people, to declare repentance to every soul? Believe me, I want to get the water to the end of the row as well. And every soul will have the chance to hear, but not from the same voice. You were the right missionary for some. Others are the right missionary for others. For a leader, for a gifted teacher, for someone who used to wear both hats of church and state, I, there might come across a certain sense of, it's got to be me. If you want to do it right, you got to do it yourself. I think a lot of us struggle with that at times. And for the Lord to say, you're not the only one who can do this. And by limiting your allotment, I'm allowing other people to grow into theirs. You're not the only one that can do this. We're all just members of the choir. He's the conductor. We are running our leg of the relay. We're not running the whole thing. 
In fact, I think it's one of the reasons that the ongoing restoration of the gospel outlives every one of us. None of us will be there to see it through to completion. None of us were there from start to finish, with the exception of God, which means he's the one that deserves the credit. The continual oversight of the entire process. Each of us just running the leg that was allotted to us. By then, he's come to grips with this. He's okay with his allotment. And so in 9, he says, I know that which the Lord hath commanded me, and I glory in it. I love my part, the role that I get to play. I do not glory of myself. Ammon would cheer him on here. Maybe Aaron was kind of looking at him for a second. But I glory in that which the Lord hath commanded me. Yea, and this is my glory. That perhaps, there's always that, ah, we, ne- we had no guarantees. That perhaps I may be an instrument in the hands of God to bring some soul to repentance. And this is my joy. By the way, I love that this is all present tense instead of past. He's not just saying, ah, that was my glory. The mission experiences that I had in in Zarahemla or Gideon or Ammonihah, oh, those were the days. No, it's not that, oh, I thought I might be an instrument and I'm so grateful that I brought some souls. It's like, no, this is my joy, not was my joy. I may be still an instrument in God's hands. I may yet bring souls to repentance. And his mission would definitely continue on. Verse 10, Behold, when I see many of my brethren truly penitent, coming to the Lord their God, then is my soul filled with joy. Then do I remember what the Lord has done for me. The best way to remember your own conversion is to participate in the conversion of others. That's kind of where he started this chapter. I want to be an angel because that's, that was my conversion. So now it's reversed. I see the conversion of others and it reminds me of all that God has done for me. Even that he had heard my prayer, then do I remember his merciful arm which he extended towards me. Yea, I remember the captivity of my fathers. Remember what this same Alma taught the people of Zarahemla back in Alma chapter 5? To remember the captivity and deliverance of their fathers, and the attributes of God that made the one become the other. Here he's doing the same for himself. I remember the captivity of my fathers. I surely know that the Lord did deliver them out of bondage. He established his church. He delivered them. Verse 12, I have always remembered the captivity of my fathers, and that same God who delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians and delivered them out of bondage. So whether it was my immediate fathers, Alma being freed from bondage to the Lamanites, or my ancient ancestors, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being delivered out of Egypt. Verse 13, it's that same God. Again, he's the only one that's been there to see the whole thing through. That same God, a God of deliverance, established his church among them, and he's done it again here. It's the same God that called me by a holy calling to preach the word unto this people. It's him that's given me success. That's the source of my joy. 14, I do not joy in my own success alone. My joy is more full because of the success of my brethren who have been up to the lands of Nephi. That's true friendship, by the way. To rejoice in others' success as much or even more than you rejoice in your own. Behold, he says in 15, they have labored exceedingly. They have brought forth much fruit and how great shall be their reward. Now, 
When I think of the success of these my brethren, my soul is carried away, even to the separation of it from the body, as it were. So great is my joy. Alma's probably thinking, oh yeah, it happens to me all the time. Faint and left, faint and right. I get it, Alma. Preach it, brother. But then Alma ends. Verse 17. And now, this beautiful kind of concluding prayer, this blessing upon his brethren and upon all the fruits of their labors. Now may God grant unto these, my brethren, that they may sit down in the kingdom of God. They've been standing up, running around for the last 14 years. May they have a chance to just sit. Sit in the presence of God, in his kingdom, but not alone. Also with all those who are the fruit of their labors. That's what it always was for. How great shall be your joy with them in the kingdom of our Father. Can you imagine seeing them all again? A mission reunion for the ages. Your fellow servants, the people you taught. And not just a full-time mission. Don't confine yourself to that. Think about every child of God in whose salvation you had a hand as you extended to them the hand of God. All those who are the fruit of their labors, that they may go no more out. Isn't that the hope? Permanence? How did we start this lesson? Way back in chapter 23. That these were converts that never did fall away. Well, they came into the kingdom and they never went out. And what did they do when they were there? They praised him forever. May God grant that it may be done according to my words, even as I have spoken. Amen. This is the great high priest of the church in Zarahemla. I think that is as close to an apostolic blessing as we could hope to find in the Book of Mormon. And it was this blessing of just coming home, of entering the kingdom of God, of sitting there and never having to leave your seat. It seemed like many of the early saints of this dispensation had that kind of a sense of just wanting that in a beautiful hymn that we don't sing as often as we should. Edward Partridge, one of the first bishops of the church in this dispensation, wrote a song called, Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise. And the way that that hymn ends is a lot like the way this apostolic blessing ends from Alma. Bishop Partridge wrote, Let Zion in her beauty rise, her light begins to shine. Ere long her king will rend the skies, majestic and divine. The gospel spreading through the land, a people to prepare to meet the Lord and Enoch's band, triumphant in the air. You get a sense of these reunions taking place, of the gospel light spreading through the land, preparing people, Lamanites and Nephites alike, for the coming of Christ that's less than a century away for these people. Ye heralds, Sound the golden trump to earth's remotest bound. Go spread the news from pole to pole in all the nations round that Jesus in the clouds above with hosts of angels too will soon appear his saints to save, his enemies subdue. Oh, that I were an angel among those hosts to speak with the trump of God 
to send that good news to earth's remotest bounds, to cry repentance from pole to pole, to prepare people for Christ's coming. Bishop Partridge's final verse is my favorite. That glorious rest will then commence sitting down in the kingdom of God, which prophets did foretell when saints will reign with Christ on earth and in his presence dwell a thousand years. O oh, glorious day! Dear Lord, prepare my heart to stand with thee on Zion's mount and nevermore to part. Do you sense that at the end of chapter 29? The end of these missionary chapters? I want to come in and sit down with thee with all that thou hast allowed me to associate with through a lifetime of service, and I never want to have to leave, and never more to part. Heavenly Father, can we just stay? Can we stay with each other? Can we stay with thee? The answer will be yes. I often wish I had a pause button during the sunsets. It's my favorite time of the day. It's so fleeting how quickly it fades into dark. But those minutes of incredible color, ah, just to pause it, to just sit with it and stay in it. Well, here's a sunset that never ends in night. That is joy to the brim and flowing over. That is joy that only the humble will ever know. That is joy that God wants to reveal to each of us, one of his best kept secrets, but also one he wants us to share with all, a secret to be shared instead of kept. I testify of the goodness of God as manifest in the chapters that we've studied this week. I testify that people really can change, that Lamanites can become anti-Nephi-Lehi's, I testify of a loving God that does not believe in slavery and does not expect us to pay him back, but simply asks that we rely upon his mercies. I testify of a God that is worth glorying in and glorying over. I am grateful for his influence in my life, and I cannot say the least part of what I feel. Maybe that's why these videos take so long. I just want to talk of him. Brothers and sisters, may your smallest part and mine be big enough to let the world know of our love of the Lord. We cannot glory too much in him.